Our reading is from Genesis chapter 19, verses 1 through to 29. The two angels arrived at Sodom in the morning and the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gateway of the city. When he saw them, he got up to meet them and bowed down with his face to the ground. My lords, he said, please turn aside to your servant's house. You can wash your feet, spend the night, and then go on your way early in the morning. No, they answered, we'll spend the night in the square. But he insisted so strongly that they did go with him and entered his house. He prepared a meal for them, baking bread without yeast, and they ate. Before they'd gone to bed, all the men from every part of the city of Sodom, both young and old, surrounded the house. They called to Lot, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us so we can have sex with them. Lot went outside to meet them and shut the door behind him and said, No, my friends, don't do this wicked thing. Look, I have two daughters who've never slept with a man. Let me bring them out to you, and you can do what you like with them, but don't do anything to these men, for they've come under the protection of my roof. Get out of our way, they replied. This fellow came here as a foreigner, and now he wants to play the judge. We'll treat you worse than them. They kept bringing pressure on Lot and moved forward to break down the door. But the men inside reached out and pulled Lot back into the house and shut the door. Then they struck the men who were at the door of the house, young and old, with blindness, so they couldn't find the door. The two men said to Lot, do you have anyone else here, sons-in-law, sons or daughters or anyone else in the city who belongs to you? Get them out of here because we are going to destroy this place. The outcry to the Lord against its people is so great that he has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and spoke to his sons-in-law who were pledged to marry his daughters. He said, hurry and get out of this place because the Lord is about to destroy the city. But his sons-in-law thought he was joking. With the coming of dawn, the angels urged Lot saying, hurry, take your wife and your two daughters who are here or you will be swept away when the city is punished. When he hesitated, the men grasped his hand and the hands of his wife and of his two daughters and led them safely out of the city. For the Lord was merciful to them. As soon as they'd brought them out, one of them said, Flee for your lives, don't look back, and don't stop anywhere in the plain. Flee to the mountains or you will be swept away. But Lot said to them, No, my lords, please. Your servant has found favor in your eyes and you have shown great kindness to me, sparing my life. But I can't flee to the mountains. This disaster will overtake me and I'll die. Look, here is a town near enough to run to and it is small. 
Let me flee to it. It is very small, isn't it? Then my life will be spared. He said to him, very well, I will grant this request too. I will not overthrow the town you speak of, but flee there quickly because I cannot do anything until you reach it. And that is why the town was called Zoar. By the time Lot reached Zoar, the sun had risen over the land. Then the Lord rained down burning sulfur on Sodom and Gomorrah from the Lord out of the heavens. Thus he overthrew those cities and the entire plain, destroying all those living in the cities and also the vegetation in the land. But Lot's wife looked back and she became a pillar of salt. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and returned to the place where he had stood before the Lord. He looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah, toward all the land of the plain, and he saw dense smoke rising from the land, like smoke from a furnace. So, when God destroyed the cities of the plain, he remembered Abraham, and he brought Lot out of the catastrophe that overthrew the cities where Lot had lived. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Reputation is a big thing. Once you have a bad reputation, it's very hard to shake it. And when we speak of bad reputations, it doesn't get much worse than Sodom and Gomorrah. Their reputation for sin was so bad, God decided to check it out for himself and then destroy them immediately. An event which happened about 1900 BC with lots of interesting geological and archaeological traces still there today. That is, if you're fortunate enough to have visited the southeastern corner of the Dead Sea in Israel. Notice my complete lack of holiday snaps at this point. Well, Sodom's reputation for sin and then being judged and destroyed by God starts in Genesis, but it actually carries on throughout the entire Bible. Even in our culture today, Sodom's reputation for sin remains with a certain crime even named in its honour. So I'm guessing that we already know something about Sodom and we're ready to reflect on some very important issues this part of the Bible raises. But first, some controversy. There is a great debate about what the actual sin of Sodom was that was so bad that God intervened with a kind of judgment before judgment day some say sodom's sin was homosexual rape others say it was inhospitality treating visitors poorly in other places of the bible the sins of sodom also include arrogance gluttony and oppression of the poor and what happens in this debate is that people take sides depending upon their wider agenda not on the basis of the plain meaning of the text but here's the thing 
trying to make some sins worse than others misses the point of the passage. It's a distraction. The point is this. Whatever Sodom's sins were, God carried out judgment on its inhabitants suddenly and comprehensively, and he did this before Judgment Day. Now, is that right or fair? Why didn't Sodom have a better chance to repent? And furthermore, on what basis did God judge and destroy them? How can God even be a good God if he does things like this? They're the kind of questions that we're asking today. Why do I think we should ask such bold questions? Because if God wanted to, he could have just destroyed Sodom with a word from heaven. Instant judgment would have followed. Job done and let's move on with the story of Abraham. But he didn't do that. Instead, he invited Abraham into a kind of mentoring discussion about justice. We saw that in the back half of chapter 18 last week. Uh, let me read to you part of that. Remember in uh, Genesis 18, verses 18 and 19, God says, Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Abraham will surely become a great and powerful nation, and all the nations of the earth will be blessed through him, for I've chosen him, so that he will direct his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just. Will God hide his ways from Abraham? Well, no, because Abraham is God's friend, declared righteous. Abraham is meant to teach his children God's ways, to do what is right and just. So God invites Abraham into this dilemma of judgment. Like any good teacher, God just doesn't tell Abraham this is how it's going to be. Instead, he says, let's have a discussion about this problem of Sodom. What should be done? Now, I guess there were three options, right? Option number one, God could just do nothing. He could decide not to judge at all, not judge Sodom, not judge anyone ever. In other words, there would be no consequences for good or evil. There would be no such thing as right or wrong. And so anyone could do whatever they wanted to me or to you. No judgment, no consequences, no law, no morality, which seems the worst of all possible options. Ultimately, we want there to be justice. And we want God to judge. Second option, God could wipe out Sodom and everyone else all at the same time. There would be absolute retribution for everyone together. No favoritism and no fuss. And this is the option that Abraham was discussing at the back end of chapter 18. God, surely you wouldn't destroy some righteous people along with the rest of Sodom. How many righteous people would it take? to hold off the destruction of Sodom. 50? About 45. 40? 30? 10? Third option. The most nuanced option is proportional retribution, not only for the guilty, but also for those who are righteous. Here God distinguishes between the righteous and the guilty. And the guilty get only and exactly what they deserve in proportion to what they have done. So in summary, option one, no one dies. Option two, everyone dies straight away. Option three, God rescues his righteous while the guilty die. And so our passage in Genesis 19 goes on to show us option three. 
unfolding in real time. And as we read earlier, the two angels go to Sodom to check the facts, like in the case for the prop, uh, prosecution. God wasn't ignorant of what was going on, but Abraham learns that God's justice is evidence-based, two witnesses and that sort of thing. The angels are also the means of deliverance for Lot and his family. And after they arrive, well, we know what happened next. And rather than focus overly on all of those gruesome details, I think we need to take careful note of the important lessons here in Genesis 19 and actually drawn from here in the rest of the Bible. So the first thing to know is that God's judgment is real. As unpopular as this idea might be in our culture, as unpopular as we might find this idea, we should know that God's judgment is real. And God said to Adam and Eve at the Garden of Eden, in the day that you eat of the forbidden tr fruit, you shall surely die. When he said that, he meant it. The judgment for sin is death. It didn't happen immediately. Instead, Adam and Eve were removed from the garden as a kind of intermediate judgment until their later deaths. And then three chapters later, judgment fell on Noah's generation. Why? Because of their sin. And then again, Genesis 11, judgment fell at the Tower of Babel. Why? Because of their sin. And once again at Sodom, the judgment for sin is death. And it's not some kind of metaphorical death. It is the death of the whole human being, body, mind, and spirit. The only unusual thing about Sodom's judgment is that it happens early, before the final day of judgment. It is a judgment brought forward ahead of time. And sometimes God does this. There are other examples in the Bible too. But just before everyone reaches for the phone and they text in questions about whether you know, COVID-19 is this or that disaster, God's judgment, I don't know. The only way we could know for sure is if God told us in the Bible. Maybe it is a warning. Maybe it isn't. We can guess, but we won't know for sure. But what we do know is that throughout the rest of the Bible, Sodom and Gomorrah act as an object lesson. Judgment is as real and certain as Sodom's fate. Jesus himself, when sending his disciples out on a preaching mission in Matthew 10, says this to them. Matthew 10. And Jesus says to his disciples as they head out on mission, If anyone will not welcome you or listen to your words, leave that home or town and shake the dust off your feet. Truly I tell you, it will be more bearable for Sodom and Gomorrah on the day of judgment than for that town. Jesus affirms that not only is judgment real, the sin of refusing to hear the gospel results in a real judgment worse than the fire and brimstone of Sodom and Gomorrah. It may not be immediate, but it is sure. Now, I know that pointing out this part of the Bible's teaching will not make me popular and that many among us will have questions. Use the text for that. I'll try and help you as best I can. I find this awkward and uncomfortable too, but I would be failing you as a pastor if I didn't make this clear. God's judgment is real. The next thing to know is that God's judgment is just. 
His judgment is not capricious or biased or dodgy. It is absolutely fair. We've already looked back at Genesis 18 where God invites Abraham to discuss the fate of Sodom. Uh, in response to Abraham's questions and his pleading, of course God will not punish the righteous along with the wicked. Option three, that's God's way. Justice will surely be done, proportional and fair. God will not destroy Sodom if there's 50 or 30 or even if there are 10 righteous people can be found in it. But since God could only find Lot and his family, just four of them in the end, he rescues the righteous out of Sodom first and then he destroys the city. God's ultimate judgment is real and it is just. As we've already seen throughout the Bible, Sodom serves as a model for Judgment Day when every person who has ever lived will stand before God and God will separate the righteous from the unrighteous. A distinction will be made, like Sodom. The guilty will suffer retribution for their sins while the righteous will experience the joy of full acceptance into God's presence and the new creation. You see, everyone is not the same, and they're not treated the same. There was a distinction based on righteousness back then, just as there will be in the future. The book of 2 Peter in the New Testament looks back on these events in Genesis 19 and says this. I find this very, very interesting. So I'm at uh, 2 Peter, uh, verse 6. For if God condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah by burning them to ashes and made them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly, and if he rescued Lot, a righteous man, who was distressed by the depraved conduct of the lawless, if this is so, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to hold the unrighteous for punishment on the day of judgment. In the face of ultimate judgment, we are assured that God knows how to rescue the godly while at the same time holding the unrighteous for judgment. It is absolutely true that we do not now see justice being done in this world. Good things happen to bad people. Bad things happen to good people. For now, Sin has even distorted natural justice. But on that great day, God's justice will be done. In fact, in the book of Revelation, we're told that when the saints look upon the completion of God's judgment decisions, they sing a song of praise. They sing, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for true and just are his judgments. This fills me with great confidence because I have no idea how God will judge all of the tricky cases, all of the people who lived and died and never had a chance to hear the gospel of Jesus, or the faithful people brought up in other religions, or without mental capacity, or under brutal oppression, or whatever other circumstances that seem worthy of God's great mercy. I don't know how God will judge these people. But I am assured that when he does, I will look upon his judgment and say, Hallelujah, true and just are your judgments. So God's actions at Sodom assure us that his ultimate judgment will be just and true 
and fair. The final truth that Sodom shows us is that God saves out of judgment. Remember how the angels grab Lot and his wife and two daughters by the hand and rescue them out of Sodom, grasping their hands, personal, full of compassion, and yet full of urgency. Come on, hurry! It, it's almost as if Lot's wife is kind of dragging her heels, resisting a little bit, but God's angels drag her out of the city by the hand before it's too late. So God's salvation is indeed a rescue from real judgment. Throughout the Bible, salvation is so important, so wonderful and beautiful, only because of the certainty of judgment. It's been that way ever since Adam and Eve were sent out of the garden. If ultimate judgment is only a myth, if it's some kind of metaphor, or if hell is going to be empty, then the salvation that costs the death of God's only Son makes no sense. My sin demanded death, as did yours. And Jesus willingly stood in our place and paid that price. You see, God saves out of a real judgment. God saves his righteous out of a judgment that is merely pictured by the destruction of Sodom with fire and burning sulfur. And because this is so, the most urgent question is who? Who does God save? Last week after his sermon, uh, Mal got a, a question on the text line asking if Lot was righteous such that he was saved out of Sodom. And very cleverly, Mal dodged and flicked the hospital pass to me this week. And I confess, if I'd have been Mal last week, off the top of my head, I would have said, no way was Lot righteous. I mean, if we look at Lot in Genesis 19, he seems far from perfect seems a little too reluctant to leave Sodom in its ways. He's willing to send his daughters out to be raped by the angry mob outside his door. His future sons-in-law don't respect him enough to believe him. I would have said Lot was not righteous, but he was saved on account of Abraham and his righteousness. Now, checking back over today's Bible reading, I could have uh, quoted from verse 27 where uh, we read the morning after, right? Uh, early the next morning, Abraham got up and returned to the place where he'd stood before the Lord. He looked down towards Sodom and Gomorrah, toward all the land of the plain, and he saw dense smoke rising from the land like smoke from a furnace. So when God destroyed the cities of the plain, he remembered Abraham and he brought Lot out of the catastrophe that overthrew the cities where Lot had lived. That connection between God remembering Abraham and bringing Lot out of judgment suggests Lot is saved because of Abraham, perhaps because of Abraham's prayers or his righteousness. Now, I would have said that last week, but today I'm not, not exactly. You see, during the week, Santino pointed me to that text in 2 Peter, where it, which we read before, it describes Lot as righteous, actually very clearly and several times. So if you're the person who texted in that question about Lot being righteous, the answer is yes, he is. But, let me explain the but. Lot is declared righteous, but that doesn't mean that he's perfect and fully deserving of his salvation. Just as Abraham is declared righteous, but he's not perfect either, lying and deceiving, passing his wife off as his sister twice. When God 
declares Abraham righteous, it doesn't mean that he is instantly sinless and perfect, fully deserving of salvation. And I take it that that is the same for Lot. It is the same for us as Christian people. That's not what righteous means here. Instead, to be declared righteous in God's sight means that a person is gifted right standing with God. For the Christian, we could say that being gifted righteousness means that we are treated as though we were Jesus, as though we had Jesus' righteousness. You see, to be declared righteous is a salvation term. Righteousness is the gift of God. God saves his righteous out of his, judge, uh, out of his just judgment, even when they don't deserve it. Why does God do things this way? Well, it seems that better than any other possible plan or pathway, more glory goes to God because he saves some out of his just judgment, graciously declaring them righteous, even when they don't deserve it. You see, according to Romans 9, God's mercy shines most brightly against a backdrop of real judgment. God's glory and grace are all the more praiseworthy because of the cross in all its horror and brutal judgment. As forgiven sinners saved from a very real judgment, we praise Jesus all the more for his grace and salvation. In the face of God's coming judgment, Abraham prayed for mercy. And I take it that we should be doing exactly the same as Christian people. We should be praying for God to have mercy. I'm going to pray now and then we'll have our Q&A. Our God and Father, we give you all the glory for saving us, undeserving as we are. We thank you for your great kindness in doing so through the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. We freely confess we don't deserve your salvation, but we are so grateful for it. We think now of friends, neighbours, maybe family members whom we know and love very much who also need your salvation. We pray in your great kindness and mercy, please will you save them too. And we ask this so that Jesus would be glorified all the more. And we ask it in his name. Amen. Well, thanks, Stu. Definitely a challenging passage and definitely the Q&A phone has been uh, going off. It's uh, buzzing quite a lot. So we probably won't get through all the questions tonight, but we'll go for a bit of time to see how many we can get through. So, Stu, uh, thank you very much. First question. Please, if you can, try to explain the offering up of the daughters as an appeasement to the rapists. It's very difficult to comprehend the meaning and the purpose of this. Absolutely, it is. Um, it's quite shocking. Um, a couple of things, I think, to, to notice there. Um, first of all, in an ancient Near Eastern culture, when you have uh, a guest who comes in to stay uh, under your roof, as it were, you are entirely responsible for their safety. Uh, and so uh, here is Lot trying to protect the angels by keeping them inside and th you know, kind of saying, look, I'll throw out my daughters to you. And, and I find that quite disturbing, as a matter of fact. Uh, I think we see here is Lot 
is not necessarily a good guy. Not, he's, he's not doing the sorts of righteous things we would expect, expect someone who's called righteous to, to do. So let's not sort of think that this is the right thing for him to do. There's something else going on too here that uh, I was reading uh, through the week. In, in this ancient Near Eastern culture, uh, for Lot to actually offer his daughters out there like that, he's actually committing a crime where he will actually be, if there were justice in, in Sodom, he would be held uh, guilty and actually lose his life over that. So he was kind of jammed. Uh, he was going to sort of die one way or the other, it seems. So it's, it's a very distasteful and not a good thing to do. Uh, it's never condoned or approved. And that's, you notice, the angels actually grab Lot and bring him back inside the house and protect him and the daughters from that ever even taking place. So a very awkward situation, not the right thing to do, Lot, but nonetheless God intervened and protected in that case. Okay, thanks, June. Uh, the next question, how do we balance the reality of God's certain judgment and death of a loved one who... Uh, who does not know Jesus, how can we freely say hallelujah, true and just are his judgments when our loved ones are condemned? Yeah. Wow. Um, that really does hurt, doesn't it? Uh, when someone whom we love very much dies and we think to ourselves, it seems that they did not know the Lord Jesus even though they had opportunity and we wonder how's that going to work? I don't know how it is that in the depth of that sadness, how on Judgment Day I will actually be able to join in that song and say hallelujah. I really don't know. But I am assured that that is what will take place. Um, I have a suspicion that um, on that day we will see things as God sees them. And that change of perspective will help us. I don't know how we could be comforted for that for eternity either a very hard one to know and this is where we must acknowledge our limitations as human beings we are not god and we do not know all things all we know is sufficient for us uh, that we have in the bible yeah thanks Stu. um okay change of topic was the judgment on lot's wife just was the judgment on lot's wife just well Again, hard for me as a human to make kind of pronouncements at evaluating whether God did or did not do the right thing. But given that uh, God deemed that that was just and, and did it, I, I guess it is just. But Lot's wife is an interesting character in this narrative. And uh, as you follow the narrative through of Lot's wife, uh, we see that she's very, very reluctant to leave Sodom anyway. It's quite likely she was a, a local, that Lot had married her in Sodom. Uh, but we see that she um, not only kind of struggles to go against the angels, but the idea of turning, to, turning back to look, it wasn't just like a quick glance over her shoulder to go, oh, I wonder what's going to happen. It wasn't just curiosity, uh, but it was more a turning to, no, I want to go back. Actually, my heart is in Sodom. So I think that there is a, a lot more to just her turning back and having a peek, much more than that. So... I think we can say, uh, with God, it was the right thing to do. Again, we are not God to evaluate his judgments. Yeah, look, this phone is running very hot with questions, and we're probably not going to get through them all. So I encourage you, if uh, it hasn't been answered, maybe drop Stu an email. And Happy to can, answer emails. He Love can to. continue to follow that up. But we'll conclude with this one. Uh, how do we understand God bringing glory to himself? Is that not arrogant? 
Yeah, I love this question. Um, if God is the greatest of all possible beings, all glory must go to him. Let's imagine if God was um, uh, saying, well, look, um, I don't want to appear too proud and arrogant, although I am God, so let's direct all of my glory to, I don't know, somebody else. Um, that would be idolatry, right? That would be giving glory to someone who is not God. So um, by that kind of strange logic, uh, when God is magnified and glorified by all that is and does, that is the right place for glory to go. So I think God uh, ought not to and cannot and will not divert glory to anyone other than himself, for that would be idolatry. So as strange as it sounds, God doesn't have a big ego. He is God and all glory does belong to him. When we say he is worthy, that's what we mean. You deserve it all. And so uh, it is only right and proper that all things be ordered for his greater glory. Absolutely. I guess it's only arrogant when, when we don't have that sort of glory. Yeah. 